And welcome to the HTML All the Things podcast, episode number 63, Grokking Simplicity with Eric Normand. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Coran. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far and you want to support us, there are a couple of ways that you could do that. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or on the podcast platform that you are listening to this on. You could check us out on Patreon. We only have a couple of tiers right now, but that $3 tier will give you a shout-out in the podcast and we'll even share a link to your website in our show notes. And probably the most important one is just to tell your friends that we're here, we're ready to be listened to. Get this out there. Just share. Um, that, we really need like a slogan for that. Just share something, you know, what, something like that. That almost sounds like Shazam. But anyway, we also have a Discord server. So if you're ready to uh, do more than just listen to us and you want to come hang out, you can come join us in our Discord server, which now has over 200 members. And uh, I'll do my best impression of like a party noisemaker. Yeah, it was late. But anyway... Lameness aside, you can come join us in that Discord server to come chat about off-topic things, about development things. We got people in there talking about WordPress, HTML, CSS, uh, I don't know, JavaScript, jQuery, PHP, everything under the sun. Uh, I mean, there's probably something that we're not talking about in there. But anyway, we got a whole bunch of stuff we're talking about. So if you if you want to come and hang out with a cool group of developers from all walks of the industry, from the experience through the non-experience, feel free to do so. Link to that Discord server will be in the description almost said what is this youtube well it might actually be but anyway we'll be in the show notes now in today's episode we will be discussing the book grokking simplicity taming complex software with functional thinking with none other than the author himself eric normand he started with functional programming in the year 2000 and has since watched the industry slowly take notice eric has spoken at conferences around the world covering topics like functional programming closure and closure script property-based testing, and concurrent programming. On top of that, he also offers consulting and training services, having worked with the likes of the federal government through non-profit companies. If you'd like to pick up Eric's book, we have a promo code available, which is PODHTMLALL19. We'll be including a link to the uh, place where you can actually purchase the book, as well as that promo code, so you can easily like kind of read it and just copy and paste it. Though That'll be in the full show notes on the HTML All the Things website. Um, we also have actually five copies of the book to give away for free. We'll be putting two of those codes in the show notes on htmlallthethings.com. Now, full disclosure, these are single-use codes, so first come, first serve. And if you're lucky enough to grab one of these codes, they're not now if you copy them, they ain't going to disappear. So you better copy that code and immediately try to redeem it. So, also one thing to just note in case there's a delay of some sort these codes are only valid for two months from september 12th 2019 so make sure you claim them in time before they time out now i did mention that we have five codes uh, that we can give away the other three we will be giving away in our discord server and um, i will be tagging the at everyone tag um, for anyone that's in the server and i'll be explaining how we're going to give those away and they'll be given away within a within a day or two of as of this recording, which is, let me just read the date to make sure this is official, which is October 8th, 2019. So make sure that you go and check that out if you're listening to this as a fresh episode. But if you're in the future, I'm sorry, but you can use that discount code if you'd like to uh, get a nice discount. Now, without further ado, let's cut to that, uh, almost said that juicy, but I don't know what I meant by juicy. Like, am I just thinking of like the keg, a juicy steak? But anyway, let's cut to that interview with Eric and Mike. Stay tuned. 
Alrighty, everyone, we have Eric on the line, and as is tradition around here, Eric, please take it away, let us know what you're doing, what you're up to, and a little bit of your backstory. Hi, uh, yeah, I'm Eric. Um, I am currently writing a book uh, about functional programming for beginners to functional programming, but people who have had some experience with at least one language. Uh, it's called Grokking Simplicity. And it's published through Manning. And it's basically supposed to be a fun trip uh, through the paradigm shift of functional programming. And, uh, well, that's one thing I'm doing. I'm also a teacher online. I record uh, videos, uh, courses on closure and functional programming. And you can find those at purelyfunctional.tv. Um yeah, that's about that's about all I do. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you for being on the show, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this uh, to this episode because we haven't really done. Um, I don't know if we've done any talks. Maybe Michael have a comment on that. I've done any talks at all on functional programming on the show? So this should be a really uh, interesting one, especially for um, a lot of our listeners because they are uh, usually either hobbyists or beginners or you know some veterans in there, of course. But uh, this will be a really interesting sort of uh, sort of a topic to cover since it's so new. Um, to us. So uh, I'll kind of jump right in here. Um, these are going to be some sort of preemptive questions regarding the book um, in the in the segment, writing a book in our show notes there. Uh, Grokking Simplicity isn't complete yet, but rather has been released as an early access title. Why did you choose to go the early access route? So the idea behind early access is to get more feedback faster um, you know, writing a book is a long process and, uh, it's good to know how the book is going to do before you finish the book. Uh, if it doesn't do well, you, you could, um, try to figure out why, get some feedback from some, some of the early readers and, and pivot. Uh, maybe they'll ask you good questions that direct, the new chapters that you're still writing. Um, it's, you know, I, I've talked to the people at Manning and they say that the reason they started it was because technology changes so quickly that often a new version, like let's say you're writing a, a book about a database, a new version of the database could come out before you've finished writing your book. And uh, it's a shame because the first three chapters have been ready for a year and that someone could have been using them and, uh, you know, gaining some value out of it, uh, before the final chapters are done. So I, I really look at it like that. Like it's, it's a good way to get it out there. Um, it's very motivational when people buy it, you know, I'm not done. So like, Oh, some, some people are buying it. Okay. I better keep working on it. I better finish it up. So it's yeah i i i do that with my courses as well uh so i i knew what it was what i was getting into and i really think that it, it helps a lot how do you choose when to kind of stop and release the early access portion or if it, it's not enough or it's too much like when when do you kind of cut yourself off and be like okay this is enough for an early access bit yeah good question uh so manning has their own uh process behind it that i'm not really in control of and 
I don't really have that much sort of introspection into how it works. Um, but this is what they've told me, uh, that they want to release something when it is has significant value and it's not embarrassing. So, you know, something where you've, you've put some uh, good quality content in there and it's not like too rough that uh, people would be like, what is this? Um, and then the idea is uh, publish uh, like one new chapter or a significant update to the book every month just to keep the momentum going, keep, keep people uh, who have bought like sort of uh, engaged with the book. Uh, don't let it go too long without new content so that they forget like what the book is about and like why they were reading it. And for another thing, like you, you mentioned in those early chapters and Matt, Matt and I read uh, the chapters that we got uh, and you mentioned in those early chapters, like future chapters, like in chapter 17, we'll cover this in depth and stuff like that. So you have, before you even kind of begin, you have a full outline of what you're going to be covering chapter by chapter. And I'm assuming you kind of have to send that to uh, the publisher, get that approved. Like there's probably a big process where like your book is planned. It's just those other chapters aren't refined yet, right? Is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. Um, so after... Um we signed the contract and everything. The first thing they asked me for, this is the publication contract. Uh, the first thing they asked me for was a table of contents. And I was like, are you sure? Like, you know, I could make one up, but I don't really know <laughs> what I'm going to have. And they're like, yeah, that's what we want. We want to know, like, what are the topics you're, you think you're going to cover? And, you know, it can change. It's not a commitment, but we... Uh, we that's where we work because you know at first i was just like very hesitant to do it very reluctant but the more i thought about it the more i was like okay i have these ideas in my head they don't know what i'm going to write about they have no idea and so they need something <laughs> they can't just wait for me to write them uh and so uh yeah i i s sat down and i made up a table of contents and um, they, they send it out for review, uh, to other functional programming experts and ask them questions like, uh, are there any topics missing? Are there any things that you think aren't important? Uh, you know, sort of grade the thing on one to five. Is it, is it good quality? Uh, does it, you know, do you think that this would be worth reading? You know, questions like that. And everyone said, yeah, those, those things sound good. At the same time, the people who weren't functional programming experts, like my editor and other people at the, at Manning, they were like, I don't know what this is about. <laughs> <laughs> what is, what is that chapter about? Like, you, you know, one of my chapters was like sets. You know, and they're like, <laughs> sets? What does that have to do with functional programming? And I'm like, well, I mean, you wanted me to write the topics of the chapters. This is this is it. This is the topics of the chapters. Uh, but since then, the the table of contents has refined. I've gotten better about understanding how to craft the title of a chapter and like what I actually want to say. And uh, so, actually, I think you read, you, yeah. So you read the first release, the V one of the Meep. 
um, in the V2, which is coming out really soon. I don't, I can't say when it's, it's, it's out of my hands, but, um, uh, it's close. Uh, there's a, a kind of a totally different table of contents because oh, I wow. reorganized the material, um, in a, in a much better way. So it's evolving. How Start much somewhere oh, and it evolves. But sorry, but what I was going to ask there was what, um, how open are you and maybe the publisher are to actually changing the, maybe not the edition number, but like the, the previous chapter. So like, I, do you guys get stuck on, okay, I've written parts, let's say parts one through four, and do you keep refining and refining that and then like kind of struggle to get onto part five in this case? Or do you sort of keep writing ahead and then just keep going back when you receive that feedback and do like little changes? Yeah, this is, this is another interesting question. Uh, so I've been, I'm, I'm just a little background. I've been blogging for over 10 years. So I'm much more comfortable, like, let me just write a first draft and hit publish, <laughs> you know, <Yep. laughs> than my publisher is. That's uh, they're, they want me to go over and like, oh, this could be better. I'm like, yeah, but it's good enough for the meep, right? I'll come back later. And they're like, well, you know, while you're here, just finish it. And I'm like, just send it out. So there's a little <laughs> tension there. Uh, because uh i i really do have this tendency of just like get the idea out see what people think uh let, get get some comments before you know regretting sending it out and having to change it um so uh yeah i'm i would much rather like kind of finish a a sketch of all the chapters and then come back through because by the time you get to the end you've learned so much that when you do a second pass you can incorporate that learning. Um, but my editor is much more like, no, first impressions matter. Like, we know how to improve this, so let's just keep improving this until we can't. And really, in practice, what happens is we do that until I'm, I'm, I feel stuck. I feel like I, you know, I could improve this, but I'm tired of it. I'm kind of burned out on this chapter. Can we just put it down and move on? And that's what happens. It's it's more like I, I just don't want to work on it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's kind of when you know you've put enough work into it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like, I don't know. I've never seen him stop. So <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> maybe he would keep going and going and going. And so it's, it's really uh, maybe that's what he's doing. He's like pushing me until I can't go anymore. Don't know. All right. So next, uh, next question here. So when would you say is a good time to start writing a book? So a couple of things to compare it to, like how much expertise do you need to have? Do you need to kind of perceive things a certain way? Do you need to have a level of mastery in some way? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it depends a lot on your goals. Um, you know, what are you trying to get out of the book? Um, you know, one of the things is that you don't want to, okay, you don't want to fake expertise, fake mastery, fake more, more experience than you have. You don't want to do that. People can see through that really easily. Um, but that being said, I think that if you're a good writer, you could make a compelling story or a compelling read 
out of your beginner experience. You know, if you could turn that into something, um, I think it's there. However, like depending on your goals, like you might, what I, what I'm, what I'm afraid is, um, someone who doesn't have a lot of expertise will, will waste their time because it takes a long time to write a book, a lot of effort. And if your goal is something like, uh, write this book and make a lot of money or sell a lot of copies or, or even gain some, uh, notoriety in the community, um, you're much better off earlier on, like publishing smaller things. So a blog, for instance, articles in a magazine, you know, smaller things that you can, uh, you can finish, um, and see how well you're doing. You're developing the craft of writing, you're developing your communication style and, and the sort of the message that you want to have. And, you know, you might find that, okay, I've written 10 magazine articles. I think that I've got a book idea now, right? This is too big for a magazine article. Uh, so I think that it should come kind of naturally and organically. Like, for instance, my book, I my goal is to spread functional programming. I think that it's one of my goals. I have, I have several goals for the book, but one of them is, is to make functional programming more accessible, more popular. And I just had this idea, this little core, and I had to kind of BS the rest of the, the table of contents, but I knew that there was a core there. And as I developed it, it turned into a, a really well-fleshed-out table of contents, and it, it's big enough for a book. I knew that. And I only knew that because I've, I've written a lot on my blog. I've given conference talks. I've uh, published these videos. Like I, I knew that it was, it was a, a major thing and I, I couldn't do it justice in a blog post. That's really interesting. Uh, I, I like how you like broke it down because for me, when I think about writing a book, it kind of scares me right away. And I think it's because I don't have that body of work that you're talking about. I don't have those like, you know, I don't have something that I couldn't say in a blog post. I think that's my issue. Whereas what you're what you're saying is like when you get so many blog posts and you're like, okay, well, I've planned out seven or eight different blog posts on the same topic. Maybe that's the point where you're like, okay, maybe I can expand this because I have so much to say about it into a book. So I really like how you broke that down. I think that'll help the audience understand when it is you should start thinking about writing a book rather than like do I have the knowledge do I have the expertise and stuff like that I think that's that's the you're right that's the wrong way to think about it because it's impossible to tell right I didn't know I was gonna write a book until until I found that idea like it wasn't like okay I need an idea for a book let me brainstorm ideas no I it was the opposite I had this thing I happened to give um so I wrote a blog I wrote a blog post and it was about different paradigms, like how do you define imperative programming and what's object-oriented programming and then what's functional programming? And in doing that, I realized I came up with a pretty unique formulation for what it is, okay? like, And this is from you know years and years of writing about functional programming, talking to people, going to conferences, practicing functional programming. And uh, 
then I was invited to speak at a conference and they said, you pick the topic. And then I said, well, I think I want to talk about this idea about what functional programming is. And I gave the talk and then I realized this is a big idea. Like the talk couldn't contain it. And so I need to, I need to turn it into something bigger. So I started podcasting about it and it's just like streaming out of me all these topics on functional programming and no preparation. You know, I just start recording and start talking about a topic and then I would do that multiple times a day. <laughs> you know, like I was so far ahead. I was like, I should publish two a week because I'm never going to finish my, my recorded, uh, episodes. And, uh, so then I, uh, I, I said, okay, it's going to be a book. So that's, that's cool. Yeah. That's a cool little insight into an author's mind, I guess. <laughs> uh, one, one question, and this is the more of an organizational project planning kind of question, uh, is how do you break up your days? So how do you, how much time do you spend writing your book? Is it kind of like a daily thing where like this day is just meant for the book or do you break up your day be like four hours book time, four hours not book time? Like how, what's your process? My process is really disorganized <laughs> and like all of ours. Yeah. I, you know, I'm trying to think if there's some like, oh, this is my ideal. Like I've done it for like a week and it was awesome. Like, so I'll tell you what I try to do is have a day for the book. You know, where it's like, okay, Tuesday, I'm going to sit down and work on chapter six. And um, that lets me get into the book, uh, forget other things. Like I close my email, I close all that, just just work on the book. Um, I have two kids and they disrupt my schedule a lot. One of them's uh, a baby, so it's it's very disruptive um and the book also is not it's not very text heavy so like when i write blog posts and i'm like okay i want to write a lot of blog posts i have a big post to write i have a schedule like okay i'll wake up early in the morning and i just get my keyboard and a coffee and i just start writing you know i just type 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 um this book isn't like that so i really need um, I really need to be able to work in different modes. <laughs> like, uh, it's also, it's also it's, uh, such a big topic. So I have like, I take notes, I have no cards. I'm like saying, Oh, not this is later. This goes in that section. This goes in that section. And, uh, it's also a lot of mouse work of like laying pictures out and, doing code snippets and things in the book. So it's not, it's not quite as like single minded focus as I remember from like writing a lot of blogs. Um, that that's why I like to have the whole day. Cause I don't know how long it's going to take. I want to be able to, to just spend all day with note cards and like shuffling them around. And maybe I don't produce any pages that day. How how vital would you say is I guess this is more toward blog uh, more toward blog posts but how vital would you say is hitting those targets that a lot of 
um, engagement specialists and a lot of marketing folks will say like, you have to, you should do a blog a day or a blog every other day. Like how much pressure do you put on yourself to actually reach targets like that? Like, oh, I need to post something every Wednesday, let's say, or something like that. Um, well, right now, uh, the only, uh, schedule I really try to keep, uh, I guess I have two schedules. So I have the podcast. I feel like that should be regular. I don't know why, but I feel like, you know, I want a podcast to go out every Monday and Thursday. I've got my newsletter that goes out every Monday morning and I've got, um, I want to do at least an hour of video per week of video courses. Right. And, um, other than that, I, I feel like I can't really sustain anymore. Um, I've also in my blogging, uh, gone more toward a longer form and more comprehensive guide approach. Um, because I think at at my the point where I'm at um, in terms of you know SEO and authority building and stuff is I I really want so you know I'm working in closure right that's what I'm teaching I want there to be a comprehensive closure learning site and um, these little one off. 500 to a thousand word blog posts are not going to ever get there. Like I need to say, okay, I'm going to look at every single uh, data structure and just list them out. And like for each one, I'm going to talk about when to use it, when not to use it. And you know, that turns into an 80,000, <laughs> 80,000 word thing. Um, and that's just the link that has to be. And, uh, I, I think that that works, that works better for me at, at where I'm at. Um, I do think that there's something to having a schedule. Uh, like I find, cause I'm not typing so much right now, like typing words, um, in, in for, for writing stuff. I find that I hesitate a lot more. Uh, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't type that. Like, whereas when I have a schedule, like, okay, every day I have to post a blog post, right? I mean, I don't think I'm like, I got to get this thing out because <laughs> this is a lot of words. And, um, you know, I had tricks like here's a trick that I used to use. Um, I was for, I don't know, a few months posting a blog a day. And, uh, what I realized was when I was, when someone would ask me a question in an email, I wouldn't hesitate i would just open up the email hit reply and just start typing an answer so i I thought why why does blogging have to be harder than that so what i would do was the night before i would email myself a question and i would phrase it like hey eric i'm a big fan i have a question about closure and (laughs) then i would write out the question and, uh, like I was really asking it, right. And then I'd go to sleep and then in the morning I'd wake up, you know, with my coffee and I'd look, open up the mail client like, Oh, an email from a fan. And I'd open it up and I'd, I'd just like, Oh, nice question, Eric. And I, and I would always start like, like I was actually responding like, Hey, Eric, nice question. Thanks for reaching out. 
enter. And then I just start typing the answer. And uh, then that would be my blog post. And I mean, it worked. It was like a psychological trick to get me to uh, write more. And without hesitating and like second guessing, like, is this worth it or whatever? No, it's, and, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like these comprehensive guides, right? It was a quest, specific question and a specific answer and it worked. It was really great. It's like setting your clock ahead by 10 minutes. It's the same <laughs> exactly. kind of, like, yeah, you're just tricking yourself every day. <laughs> or but telling it works, your friend, right? pick an I pick N between 10 and 20 and set <laughs> yeah. my clock ahead so I won't know how far ahead it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's, uh, I mean, it works. It's been proven to work. So that's, that's a cool little trick there. That's a, that's awesome. Would you actually, in your blog post, would you actually keep the, the you know, the header part? So, so, uh, that's a good question. What I would do is say like, Hey, that's a great question. Let me rephrase the question for you and just to see if I understand it. And then I'm going to answer it. And so then I would start the paragraph like, someone just asked me, you know, da 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 da, and then <laughs> I'd answer it. Yeah, so giving away all your secrets to your fans. <laughs> Everyone thought you were just getting asked all these questions, but <laughs> well, sometimes they were they were yeah. directed at me, you know, or you know, but but usually it's like it took me a month to really come up with the answer, and so now that I sent it to myself, you know. Now it's in writing and it's there in exactly. front of you. That's cool. Exactly. Um, with that, with that all being said, that's a cool. Uh, that was a segment about uh, how writing a book, you know, how to write a book, you know, stuff like that. But I want to move on to functional programming because I think it is an important topic. Um, I learned about it a little bit when I was studying in university. Uh, we 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 you know we learned about all the different kind of pro- programming paradigms. And when I went to sit down, when I sat down to read your book, I didn't know what I, what to expect, obviously, because you and I had never talked and I had never read anything from the Grokking series. Because I think Grokking is a series as far as I understand mm-hmm, it, right? Mm-hmm. That you're just adding on to as an author? Yeah. I, I okay. mean, series is, um, you know, is it's a book term, right? They're not like related, like you got to read this one and then the mm-hmm. next one and then the next one, like you'd think like a television series, you have to watch them in order. Uh, but they are, they do have a similar style and they have, um, they're supposed to have kind of similar scope and, and like feel to them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and when I sat down to read it, I was just actually in like a hotel room and I just, you know, popped out my iPad and I just went through it. It was actually a really interesting and engaging read, even for someone that maybe wasn't expecting it and wasn't like looking for, okay, I need to change all my stuff to functional programming. I thought it was, I thought it was good in the sense that it taught me what I was doing that was already functional and how, like how to think a little bit differently as well, which is I think valuable to anyone at any point in their programming life. Like if you're just starting out, even I would say that this is kind of a valuable thing to know about, to know about a thing called functional programming. Cause not only will you know about, okay, this is how to think functionally, but you'll know that what you've been doing is a, like there's certain things that you've been doing that are already functional. So it's cool to kind of label what you've been doing because it's tough. And I know like when I was first starting out, uh, you just kind of sit down and write code and your code just looks however it is, spaghetti code, functional code, what it doesn't matter. Uh, it just kind of works, but it's tough to kind of like talk about it to other industry professionals. It's tough to label it. It's tough to organize it in your head 
as you go forward. So it was definitely a helpful reminder of functional programming and a very much a, uh, you know, a scope broadener. So it, it definitely broadened my interest in it, which is, which, which was cool. Like I liked the way the book was laid out. It had, like you, like you were saying, it wasn't text heavy. It's very much diagram heavy and, uh, like picture heavy, which was a really cool way of doing a programming book. Cause I've read a few of them and a lot of the ones that I have read have been text heavy and they've been a little bit harder to kind of sit down and read in an afternoon sort of way. I sit down and read when I need to like, if I pick up a book usually about programming, it's usually because I need something from it, period. It's not an entertainment thing for me. Whereas a grokking type style, like this this style of book was almost an entertainment thing. Like I, I sat down with a coffee, like you were saying you were writing it. I sat down the same way reading it and I was like, wow, this is actually really interesting. So props to you on creating that kind of atmosphere in your book. And thank you. I just, yeah, no problem. And I just want you to give kind of a quick overview to our audience because our audience is very, uh, usually very new to, to programming, usually new to web development in general. So, uh, we're looking, they're looking at it from kind of a very beginner point of view. So if you can give a nice overview, doesn't have to be too in depth, obviously, of what functional programming is. Sure, sure. Um, I, I do want to say, um, thank you for all the, the nice things you just said about my book. I, I feel like, um, like, uh, you, you hit the, the, you hit the nail on the head or I hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, I, that was my goal. You know, (laughs) what you said is my goal is, is to make it, uh, feel like, Oh, I I know some functional programming. Right. Um, and I do want to also thank y'all too, because, um, there's a lot of beginners out there and you're making great content for beginners and, and really making it very accessible for them. So anything to, help people along any content out there thank you so much thank you well thank you very much yeah um okay so an overview of functional programming okay this is not going to be the wikipedia definition of functional programming uh because i think the wikipedia definition of functional programming does a disservice uh by being too academic and obtuse uh there's a lot of like sort of baked in assumptions about what uh what you need to know to understand that definition and this book is trying to take people who don't have those assumptions already and and give them a a, a perspective for for how to see their code so that that definition might one day make sense to them so the uh functional programming is a paradigm. Uh, you might have heard of imperative programming or object-oriented programming. Well, functional programming is one of those. Those are three different paradigms. Uh, it's a set of perspectives and skills that you approach problems with. So you have some programming problem. How do you look at it? What are the what are the thing the first things you do? What are the things you look for? How do you look at the problem? And then what kinds of programming skills are you going to bring to the table to solve it? Um, the, the way I define functional programming is 
the first perspective, the first distinction that a functional programmer makes is to divide everything into actions, calculations, and data. So actions are things that have an effect on the world or if your system is affected by the world. So if you get an event like a mouse click, right, that's your program is being affected by the outside world. Or you could send an AJAX request that's a that's having an effect on the world because you know you're posting some data to the server now the server is different um calculations are pure computations that means that it's something like addition you know four plus four doesn't have any effect on the world it just calculates eight and it's going to calculate eight every time doesn't matter when you run it it's timeless it's just always going to do that and you can write your functions to do the same. To you know, if you wrote a function that was just return four plus four, uh, that function is now every time you run it is going to give you eight. It's going to give you the same answer. And you know, you can make a more complex function, of course, that has arguments. But if for the same arguments it returns the same value, and it doesn't send AJAX requests or do any actions, then it's a calculation. And so it's something that. Uh, you don't have to worry about when it runs, right? Um, whereas, for instance, if, you're, if your system sends an email, you do have to worry about when that runs. I want to send the email, uh, or at least I have to worry about how many times it runs, right? I, sending the email zero times is totally different from sending it one time. And there might be things that you have to do in a certain order, like I want to... Um, I want to set the the button to a spinner, like and get the AJAX request, and then that response is gonna now I'm gonna put the value into the button. You know, these things have to happen in a certain order, and and it's hard to have order in an async environment like JavaScript. It turns out other other systems, other languages that don't have the async stuff, they still have the same problem, uh, and then. Data, this is the third thing. Uh, data is, you know, just the, what you would call data, just numbers, strings, data structures. And what's interesting about them is they are totally inert. They don't do anything. They just sit there. And you can send them across the wire. You can save them to a disk. You can do whatever you want to them. And th they can be interpreted at at all ends of the of the you know of that that sending and receiving and the because they don't do anything they need to be interpreted by something right they need to be interpreted to give them meaning cuz the number 4 doesn't mean anything unless you know like how to interpret it right so the, the same with like a huge json blob what do I do with this? Oh, well, I'm looking for the user ID, which is down in, in this object deeper in here. Okay, that's where the user ID is stored. Okay, you're interpreting that object in a certain way. And uh, so data data is like the safest because it can never crash. It can never uh, have any problems. I mean, you can have bad formatted data, of course, right? But if it's if it's data, it's still data. It's not it's not going to cause any problems. Uh, calculations are good because uh, they're pure. They can be easily tested. 
um, you know, one thing about testing is you're probably going to want to run the same function multiple times. You don't have to set up any environment for a pure function for a calculation because uh, it doesn't depend on anything on the outside except the arguments, and you pass those in. So you can choose exactly what to pass in. And you can run it on a different machine. You can run your test on your build server, and that test is going to be valid uh, for you know someone's browser, right, when the JavaScript is running in the browser. Uh, actions are the most problematic, they are, but they are necessary because you need to send that email or you're not, you're not doing what your software is meant to do. So we need them, but we also know that they're the most dangerous, they're the most difficult to work with. And so a lot of functional programming, starting with this division, splitting things up and saying, identifying, these are my actions, these are the calculations, these are the data. Uh, once you split them up, you can start to focus more attention on the actions because that is where the problem is. So you, you just pay more attention to them. And you can move code from action into calculation. So you refactor stuff, pull it out. Oh, look, here's this little calculation I'm doing inside of this big action. I can now make that into a function, which is a calculation. And so you're moving code out, making it more testable, more reusable. And, you know, this is, this is a, a large part of what the first part of the, of the book is about. It's about how to identify them, how to refactor stuff out, how to work with data so that it's immutable, meaning it, you never change it. Uh, and then the chapter wraps up with a little bit of uh, architecture, a little design uh, called stratified design, which is about how, how you can design these layers of meaning so that your code uh, aligns itself with uh, the layers of code align themselves with uh, how fast they change. So the, you'd imagine the fastest changing code is on top and the more stable code is on the bottom. That's really nice because the stuff on top is built on the stuff below it. So uh, you, you don't have to change the stable stuff. If you had to change the stable stuff, everything on top would you know topple over. Uh, but because it changes less frequently, uh, you, you've sort of reduced your maintenance to the minimum. Yeah, that's that's a really good succinct functional programming overview. Uh thank you for that, that's for sure. Um hopefully with that people can kind of form a, you know, something in their minds of what functional programming is because as we're going to move forward, we'll talk a little bit about functional programming as well as when to use it and stuff like that. So just keep what uh Eric has said in mind. Next question here would be, most developers, especially ones listening to the podcast, wouldn't label themselves in one of these paradigms because they're just starting out, you know, like they're they're just doing JavaScript. JavaScript can be one of many things when you're writing it. That's one of its things. Uh, how important is it, a two-part question here, to know about all the different approaches that are out there, like so, all the all the different paradigms out there right away as you're starting out developing, and how important is it to kind of like use one and then strictly follow it, like really dive into only functional programming and be an expert in that. Um, so I have two answers to that. Uh, <laughs> so I I don't think it's so important. 
uh, to be strict on any one paradigm when you're when you're programming. Uh, I I look at them as sets of skills. Um, so you know, in my book, I'm I'm really breaking up functional programming as a set of skills that happen to be used by functional programmers. These are things that come from that perspective and uh, they're, they're not exclusive to functional programmers, but I would say that they're more common in a functional, you know, programming team and uh, but they're useful. They need to pay the skills and the approaches uh, need to pay for themselves right away. Meaning you should not think if I'm not a hundred percent functional, it's not worth doing at all. You should be able to see, Oh, if I just made this one thing immutable, then I, you know, I would solve the problem that I have, right? You don't have to make everything immutable, just this one thing, or, uh, this, this function is getting really long. Let me factor out all of the little calculations inside right? Maybe that's one little thing you do in one place in your code and it just makes it a little bit better. And I, you know, that would make me very happy if people, if people learned to do this kind of piecemeal functional programming. Um, okay. So that said, in terms of learning it, I think there's something to be said for immersion. Uh, so if you, if you're really into learning object-oriented programming, you might be better off choosing a language that makes it really easy and makes everything else hard because then you're going to have to figure out how to solve problems with those skills and those perspectives rather than some other one that you might already know, right? And so likewise with functional programming, I think it is easier to learn if you are in a functional language. So one that makes functional programming the default. Um, that's not to say that you can't learn it and you can't learn the skills, but it's just like learning a language. Like you can learn to speak a few words and, you know, even some grammar and, you know, make sentences, but everyone knows the best thing is to just live in the country where you're forced to use it. Yeah, absolutely. And just to follow up with that, what are what would you say are the functional languages then? Like, do you have a few in mind? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, so Clojure, Haskell, um, Erlang, Elixir, uh, PureScript, Types. Well, not TypeScript. I wouldn't put TypeScript in it. Elm on the front end. Um, Rust is pretty functional. Uh, Swift is kind of functional. So it's functional. Okay. Where, where would you label something like JavaScript? JavaScript is, is multi-paradigm. So I would say that you can do functional programming in it, but it's, it's not, I mean, it's, it's like a, it's like a city where you can speak both German and Spanish. If you speak Spanish, like you're not going to learn German because you're just going to speak Spanish every time. Uh, so if you know, imperative programming in javascript uh it's going to take a lot of willpower and discipline to stick with the functional stuff 
which might be good. You know, if if you're if you if you know you're working at work and you just need to get features done, sometimes you're just going to do it the familiar way. And then sometimes you're going to say, okay, I have more time. Let me see how I would do this in a functional way. That's a perfectly fine way to learn. You know, do it like do it again. Write it once the way you're familiar with. And then the second time, try to approach it with a different set of constraints. That's a great way yeah, to learn, okay. in fact. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. I think I think with the with the web development crowd in general, it's kind of this these concepts are always a little bit harder because of that multi-paradigm right. approach of javascript right. right so when you're talking to someone who's like just use the object-oriented approach or like why i'm just using i'm just writing this code yeah. like why right. are you trying just to get me to down work. a certain specific path <laughs> yeah i'm just getting it to work even though if they were using something like java they would be like forced to use the object-oriented right right and then you see the opposite which is someone who overuses oo and that's great because they're exploring the you know the class keyword the new class keyword in javascript and they're they want to do everything with that instead of the simple way which would just be use a function like why are you making a class for that and um that's great except if you're doing it on production code like that's not your time you're spending <laughs> you know you're spending company time on your learning and maybe you should be doing that, you know, on your own time, you know, to explore that thing. See, I think doing these extreme things, where it's like, I'm going to use a class everywhere. I'm going to find the limits, right? That's great. I've done, I've, I grew up on that kind of stuff. Like, um, you know, I'm never going to call, I'm never going to write a function. I'm going to only do, you know, methods. Sure, do that. Uh, but then, that might not be the actual most professional way to write it. And you have to recognize that. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And one thing that bring it back to the book a little bit, uh, in the book, you actually chose to use JavaScript as the language for functional, like to, to explain functional programming. I think you do a good job explaining why I just want you to point out to everyone like because it's also important for our audience to know that when you're going to be reading the book most of you are familiar with javascript so this will kind of resonate with you more than someone that's not familiar with javascript right right so um good question so i i feel the need to emphasize that it isn't a functional programming in javascript book it's a very common question that i get um they, you know, cause they're like, well, I read this other book, which is all about functional programming in JavaScript. I'm like, yeah, but that's not, that's not what this is about. It is a functional programming in general book, language neutral, but then I needed a language to write code samples in because I did want it to be, you know, in the code, seeing refactorings, exercises in code. And so I had to choose a language. And I chose JavaScript because it is kind of like a lingua franca. Even if you're, so front-end programmers, sure, very familiar with it. Even back-end programmers, they sometimes have to go into JavaScript. It's got a similar enough syntax to Java and C Sharp and C that you could read it if you, if you needed to. Uh, and we don't go into any like super detail about like some 
weird feature in JavaScript. I try to write all of the um, all of the code samples not in like pure idiomatic JavaScript. Uh, people comment on that all the time. They're like, "That's not how I would write it." And I'm like, "No, that's not the point. I'm using <laughs> I'm using a very clear style uh, for that's like even a Java programmer could understand this JavaScript." And uh, as much as possible, right? I'm trying to do that. So it's it's written for clarity of code. Not it's not trying to teach you like this is the best way to do Java uh, functional programming in JavaScript. How right. how useful do you think um, functional programming is in sort of a if you if you take it right into web development into like a rapid fire web development agency that is working with a whole bunch of libraries, a whole bunch of different different new technologies. You know, they have some older clients that are on older technologies. They're all over the place. There's, they have different servers. They're using Apache, Nginx, the whole bit. So they're kind of all over the place. How how useful or not useful do you think functional programming is for people that are using so many different technologies across maybe a team or two? I think that there's a lot that functional programming can add to help manage the complexity of all of those libraries. Um, that's not to say that you're, you're, you're not going to have to like cheat and use some, you know, just straight up imperative code somewhere. Right. Um, but this, that first idea of like identifying this is safe to call at any time. I don't have to worry about side effects of this code. I can call it a hundred times and it won't matter. Um, I don't have to set anything up. I don't have to set up any global variables. This is a safe function to call versus this other function. I have to be very careful when I call it. I have to set up systems of, of making sure that it doesn't get called twice, right? Or making sure that it gets called only after this other thing gets called. So those, that first, that first distinction that you make, like, between code that's safe to run at any time versus code that you have to be careful with that i think i mean it's just universally applicable you know doesn't it doesn't matter if your if your agency is using some specific library that's not functional or you know legacy code i think that that is just something to be aware of all the time yeah that that's a that's a good way to approach starting using functional programming i think that's another thing is like if you're working in a small team of people and you can just differentiate those two things like code that is just a calculation isn't immutable and stuff like that uh versus the code that will perform changes mm -hmm. if you could just differentiate those two things inside of your team it'll make communication a lot clearer when they take up your page you know when they take up your code and for for all their all their git workflow and stuff like that so i think that's a even there is a good place to start if you're not going to you know fully delve into a functional programming approach and with that being said i kind of want to point out like one of the things that i do a lot of and i i don't i'm one of those people that don't define which approach i use at this point mm -hmm. although I, that might change when i start working on larger projects with more of a team uh, but right now, what I do is I use a very data-first approach to programming, where I spend a significant amount of time structuring my JSON responses, structuring my APIs, structuring the data that's going to be used in the application before I start like structuring my functions and my, uh, you know, my calculations and how how I'm going to be using that data essentially. 
how well would this approach work with something like functional programming? Yeah, I think really well. I, I I think that that's a really great thing to do is spend a lot of time on your data because that's that's like the new interface, right? Like you have some web endpoints that uh, say like send me a JSON like this and um, you know I'll, I'll I'll do stuff for you. Um, the there's two parts to it. There's the URL which is like the name of the endpoint, right? It's like it's public name, how you access it. And then there's the JSON that gets sent to it. And uh that you you that's public. You can't change it once it goes out there, right? It's like you don't want to break backwards compatibility with any clients that are using it. So I really think that um like spending a significant amount of time designing your data, imagining how it's going to be used and I mean, that'll pay, that'll pay off a lot. Yeah. Cool. Regardless of the function of, of the approach, right? Like, but I think yeah. it does regardless work with of, and with functional programming, like the whole third part is about data modeling. Uh, how are you going to, how do you use the, you know, we're in JavaScript, so we're using, you know, arrays and objects basically. And how do you use those to model, uh, whatever domain you're trying to model. And um, it's something that I think was kind of lost in the like OO years when everyone was like so gung-ho about OO. It was all about making an interface and putting some methods on a class and and having like a, a hierarchy, like a class hierarchy. And that was what modeling was. It's like, you know, a, a dog is an animal and a cat is an animal and like things like that, like silly exercises that don't really help you, you know, solve the problems of your code. But you would sit there and you'd draw these diagrams and then, you know, then deal with all the problems and if statements, right? Um, and so I feel like the straightforward data modeling approach of of saying like, what data do we need to capture um, so I didn't define data data. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says it is facts about events. So an event being something that happens, right? Just an informal, you know, event and a fact is some piece of information. So you, you you have all these events that happen. Web requests come in and the fact is this was the body of the request, right? And, that probably represents some other event. The user clicked this button and it was a buy button. And so they have, you know, we're capturing that that was clicked and that they intended to buy. And so that's all encoded in the data. How do you do that? How do you encode that in the data? Because this is going to leave the browser. This JSON blob is going to leave the browser, be sent across the world to another server. And now it's going to have to communicate all of that to the server and and like i'm trying to i'm trying to show how profound this is right that somehow you can encode the user's intention in a string basically that then has an effect and sends them a sends them a i don't know fidget spinner or whatever they buy on on their site (laughs) 
And I mean, that's amazing, right? That this, this JSON can do that, but you have to design it well. It has to be well-crafted to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, when you start thinking about it like that, it's kind of crazy. And it's also, again, with function, like bringing it back to functional programming, it's all asynchronous as well. So it, you don't know how many times it's going to happen. You don't know, you don't know, you know retries, when it's going to happen. Yes, yeah. And you have to account for mm-hmm. that somehow. Right. So it's, it, it's, it's definitely an interesting paradigm. We don't technically, we don't usually think of it in that sense. We usually think of it as like, okay, I need to wait for this to happen and then do something. I don't know. It's, it's tough to explain in, in this kind of context, but it's cool that uh, we, you know, bring it down to earth about how crazy these systems are. And with that, and I want to, I want to do a precursor to what I'm about to ask is I understand that this is bad practice, what I'm going to ask right now. But I know a lot, I know from experience and from talking to a lot of other developers and programmers that this happens a lot where you want to invest time into doing project planning and design, gathering requirements, doing your diag, your UML diagrams. Um, I think what's the, the functional diagram that you were pointing out in the book? It's like a diagram, timeline Mm -hmm. diagram. Yep. Doing like timeline diagrams for projects. But a lot of the time your management or your, your team will just be like, just write the code. You know what I mean? And as much as you want to fight back, you don't really have much of an arsenal to fight back when you're just starting Mm out as a junior developer. How would, what would you say, like, what, what are your like one or two points that you would throw back at them for allowing, like, you know, for get, getting, getting the time, the paid time to actually do those diagrams and actually plan out your code? Well, there's, there's a t-shirt that I saw recently that says, <laughs> um, weeks of coding can save you, save you hours of planning. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I want, oh, now I want that. T-shirt. I know. I wanted it too. It's so true. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many times I spent so many time, so much time coding, and then realized, oh, if I had just sat down and thought about this, I would know that it was a dumb idea. Ah. Um, I, I, I don't know how to convince someone that thinking is actually work in our line of work that that is the most valuable thing you can do um i do think that there's something to be said for um for prototyping right like let me let me do some experiments uh with some code uh but i think too often we don't really have a good clear statement of what problem we're trying to solve um and so we don't even know where we're gonna wind up if we start solving it you know we don't know what we're doing um and we we simply don't spend enough time thinking about why we're doing it like what is there a better way to do it you know, let me think of a few ways. And I, I don't know. I, I, I know the, the feeling of being rushed and how, oh, I could solve that and just type it up. And, and I do, and I get it out the door and it feels good, you know? Um, but 
uh, it's the kind of thing that I often later regret. Um, now the thing is also, there are a lot of obvious problems, you know, where I've solved this before. I've solved this a hundred times. I know the way to solve it. Um, but those come with time, you know, and, um, I think also in a startup, you often make those trade-offs. Like I'd rather have the wrong feature out today than the, you know, the right feature out in two weeks. But it, it's also, you know, in that, in that perspective, thinking is indistinguishable from procrastination. And so you, the, the, the trouble with recommending that someone thinks more is you're not giving them a concrete process to go through. And you do learn that over time. Um, yeah, but I, I do think we need more, more like step-by-step processes to follow in our industry to, to arrive at solutions. What, um, with that being said, are there any, are there any sort of, uh, I guess you'd be, I guess it'd be more presenting it to the, the management staff. So if you're trying to convince your, your management, Hey, like I want more time to, to plan. I want more time to, you know, kind of think about this rather than just jump right in. Are there any tools that can easily sort of, maybe they'd be organizational tools like I don't know, Trello or something like that, where you can more easily line out, like, this is why I want to think about this. And kind of hand that to maybe a non-technical staff member or someone who's maybe a little less tech savvy to try to convince them, like, please give me the extra three hours so I can think about this. I wouldn't ask for permission because <laughs> it's not because, you know, you should, they're, they're, it's not because they're not going to give it to you and you should just do it anyway. It's more because um, as a professional, you have more of an understanding of the process and what needs to be done. And when you ask for permission like that, often what I find is they're, they say no, but they're not saying don't do your job correctly. What they're saying is, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do your job of deciding to do that or not to think or not. Um, and what I would do is if it's something big, like a bigger project, I would write it up as a proposal. I would shop it around in the team, ask for comments on it, you know, turn it into a, an artifact that can be shared, so, you know, write it up in English and, and spread it around um, I've often found that when a manager, uh, you know, they're a non-technical person who's asking for a feature, let's say, when they, when they give me the feature, they, they often think this should be really easy, right? I've thought a lot about it. It should be easy. Well, then ask questions, show them that it's like not easy. It's not complete. What is the error message when this, when this times out? What happens if they type a, a long email address that's more than 20 characters, right? Like, like 10% of our users have. 
right? What, how does that get displayed in this tiny box that you've drawn on this picture? Like really push at it because I think that they don't see the complexity, right? And then they're going to, you're going to do it. You're going to do your best to do what they asked for. And it's going to be wrong according to what their idea was. So I really think that asking questions is a good tool. And then something that's maybe more internal, I would shop it around in a written form. Okay, cool. Yeah, I guess I guess sometimes you have to you have to sort of take charge of your own project, right? And make sure that you do your own job rather than kind of throwing that to management being like, Can I please, yeah. you know, <laughs> may, may I please right, right. do this do this correctly? So I feel the same uh, about uh code cleanup. You know, people talk about, Oh, can we have some like a sprint to clean up our code? Like, no, don't don't ask. Um just do the cleanup. Um and if they if they say, Oh, can can we get this feature done? It's like we'll put it on the backlog. Just like you would say about anything if you were busy with something else. And I mean, in in some sense, it's not their decision to make uh of like what uh you know, what operations in the code you're doing are, right? You should be um you, you, they shouldn't have to be managing that part of the situation. Right. That's a good way to, that's a good way to put it. I think that that's a good, a good way. Cause a lot of employees these days, especially will be sort of more, more timid, if you will, because well, especially if they're junior employees mm-hmm. or they're brand new, they'll be more timid, but really you just have to make sure you do your job properly. Cause at the end of the day, if you hand, hand whatever it is in and it's not done correctly, you know, whether it be assignment or an actual, you know, a production thing, that's not going to be just for school or for learning, you know, it has to be done correctly. So, you know, you have to do your own due diligence. Um, and with that being said, I'm going to, that'll transition nicely into the next question here, which is, um, in the first pages uh, of the book, you lay out a scenario where a developer asks a manager if they can use functional programming on an email app. The manager, uh, looks up the definition and sees that it quote unquote avoids side effects and that sending an email would be a side effect. So with that being said, the manager then says that functional programming is too risky, uh, to use on the project. Now, if a programmer needed to use a variable or a function or even recursion on performing part of their duties, they wouldn't have to ask the manager for each step of the way. They would just implement the solution their way. So this leads into a couple of questions here. With that being said, what is so different about functional programming that would warrant asking permission? And second one here, is this a situation where the entire team and not just one programmer must adopt functional programming for it to be effective? Wow. So that's a really good question. And um, just to, just to uh, give some context for that part of the book, my intention and whether I did a good job with my intention, it's another matter, but my intention was simply to have like a little narrative for, why there's like a miscommunication with management and that functional programming definition you find on Wikipedia. Um, so it wasn't really like, oh, this is a common scenario where someone's asking permission to use functional <laughs> programming. That said, I do think that um, in certain um, in certain companies, they might have like a code style guideline. Right. And so they would, they would have some, uh, you know, rule in their style guide that says, you know, 
we use classes, not functions, right? You know, something like that. Like I'm, I'm just making it up, but um, they, they would have some rule where it's kind of harder to do functional programming. And so you are kind of going up against the team. So maybe you need someone higher up to allow that like exception to the rule. That I mean, that's, that's what I was thinking. Now, does that mean that you need the whole team to buy in? I think they do need to buy in, but I'm going to, I'm going to preface that by saying that, like I was saying before, these are principles that work in any paradigm. They're skills that are, are, they're used by functional programmers, but it doesn't mean you have to be like all in on functional programming. So, um, they should see the benefit. Like you should be able to say, look, if we just make this a pure function, it'll be much easier to test. And if you're in, if you know, your team needs to test stuff like, oh yeah, you're right. That is easier to test. And it should be as clear as that. Um, so yes, buy-in, yes, because you, we work in teams. Like you can't just be a renegade and just like do whatever you want in the code without regard to to the style of the code and like you know how how you you practice your on, on uh, coding on a team. But uh, so you do need buy-in, but it doesn't mean like I said before, it doesn't mean like everything has to be functional from now on. And you have to, you know, go a hundred percent on everything. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes a lot, that makes, uh, that makes some good sense for, cause I, I would, I would be worried like as a junior guy, even right. If you, you know, you come in and you're, you're all about functional programming, that's what you've been learning. And then like some of the senior guys are just kind of, you know, ripping through their own code and you're just like, ah, I right. don't really want to go and bug all them and be like, Hey guys, let's change this whole, this whole project yeah. up. Yeah, that's yeah, like yeah. years oh, in. A monad would be really great right about here. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, um, just to be clear, there are a lot of, uh, let me call them advanced functional techniques that we're not even going to get into in the book. Functional programming is a huge field. We can't do it all in one book. Um, and a lot of times they would be very unfamiliar. You know, just, you know, if you just saw it like right in the middle of the code, you'd be like, what is that thing doing? And uh, I'm not suggesting doing that. I'm suggesting these more fundamental ideas uh, like the ones we go over in the book are, are just good idea, ideas in general. And they, they should be easy to convince people of. Right. Um, so next question here, then, um, it's mentioned that functional programming is more useful in more complicated applications, like in something like a distributed system. Is there something or is there any benefit uh, for a beginner programmer in trying to use functional programming in the simple applications that they're writing or learning on? Okay. Is there any benefit? Yes. But these are these are principles and skills that they're they're like design and architecture ideas that really pay off more at scale. You know, so the benefit is there, but it's very small. And so if you've got a small program, you know, any old style, any old discipline, you know, no discipline is fine, right? Just get it working, right? But as the program grows, you're going to find that you're slowing down 
uh, it's turning into a mess. You're getting lost. Like, what does this do anymore? You're starting to get bugs that you can't, you can't identify. Um, and that's where disciplines help. And there's object oriented disciplines that could help. There's functional programming disciplines that could help. So, um, I, yeah, um, that's my answer. It's, there's a benefit, but it's small. Okay. And, and would you say, would you say with that, that a, and I think we've touched on this a bit already as well, but like, would you say that someone who's maybe they've kind of mastered the, the stage of programming that they're at. So like when they go and approach, so they're not, they're not like just learning the syntax. They're at the stage of when they go and approach another problem and it's still a simple problem. They're able to, you know, kind of just do it. They're able to like think it up in their head. They know how, know what's going on generally. Would you say that at that at that stage, even though it's a simple, would you say that that's when they should maybe start learning some of these paradigms like functional programming? Or should that still be left to where they're given a huge project and they're like, wow, I don't know how to do this. Now I got to look up these paradigms to sort of organize these this big project. Or is that too much all at one time? Um, I guess I would say that bringing experience of like getting into a mess <laughs> would help it definitely helps because then you're like i wish i had some skill to to get me through this um or to avoid it you know um right and i think that it it doesn't take long before an undisciplined approach you know i'm talking about a few hundred lines of code you start to get lost and like, oh man, that function's really big. Like maybe I need to break <laughs> it up a little bit, but I don't know how. Like those, that's where it, it really starts there. Um, so it, it, to give advice for someone who's like still struggling to just get something working, you know, don't, don't worry about a paradigm, you know, just, just code. But when you start to feel like, wow, there must be a better way. Is there some discipline that I could have? That's when you should start looking into other, other, uh, you know, code styles, paradigms, things like that, little rules, disciplines that help you um, make sense of what's going on. Because there's a lot going on there, and people have come up with quite a lot of good, you know, guidance and, and um, I want to call it wisdom over time of like, you know, like the, like the three categories, actions, calculations, and data, just identifying those and saying, wow, I've got quite a lot of code in actions. Like maybe I should start removing some of that code. Um, if you if you're in an object oriented approach, you're like, Oh, this would make a really nice, I've got a lot of conditionals in here. Maybe I should encapsulate the differences and use polymorphism. You know, it's so you just, you, you have the terms that, uh, that come from the paradigms and they can st- start helping you solve these problems. Right. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I'm just thinking like, I want to kind of bring it all together for, for mm-hmm. the audience. And this is an impromptu suggestion uh, and you could shoot okay. me down uh, both of you. Uh, but what I'm thinking is maybe we should uh, go through an example, functional programming, just a quick functional programming example, and maybe do that breakdown that you mm-hmm. were just mentioning with the actions, data, and calculations. Uh, and calculations. And one of the examples that I was thinking of off the top of my head was one that you use in the book, which would be really simple to explain, which is the pizza ordering, mm-hmm. online pizza por- ordering application. What do you guys think of that right now? Sure. Let's, yeah, sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. So uh, for that, I'm just going to break down what an online pizza ordering application would do. Mm-hmm. 
And then we can kind of classify the steps just quickly. We don't have to do every single step, obviously, but classify the steps that would be considered actions, would be considered calculations, would be considered data. And like which parts of the steps, I guess, would be considered each. So a pizza order application would take an order from a user, okay. right? Then that user, would, like that user could enter his information, right? And he would order the pizza that he wants, depending on which toppings he wants and stuff like that. And he would then place that order, having already sent all the information in. Then the process of actually creating the pizza will start happening, right? So you would have many different steps in that process for, you know, putting the cheese on, putting the, spreading the sauce, uh, putting all the toppings that the user defined, then putting it in the oven waiting for it to cook in the oven, taking it out, putting it in a box, putting it in a delivery capsule or whatever, and sending it to the user's house. That's just a one user example, right? There's billing in there and stuff like that. But I'm thinking like at the start, so the user entering his data, how would we break that down? So like, let's say they have a web page that they can enter this stuff on. Um, so the web page is loaded and there's, uh, I don't know, form fields that they're filling out. All of that, all of the entering, the typing, the mousing around, that's generating events, right? That's, um, going on to the event, uh, queue, which goes into the event loop, right? Uh, so this is all actions. However, that little piece of data that's sitting on the queue, that's just data. It's already happened. It's in the past already. By the time it gets processed, that mouse click was is is old, right? Uh, it just happened so fast we don't think about that, but it it's it's old. It's already happened. Um so that's just some inert data that's sitting there. Now you might do some validation. Now that validation on the data in the form, like before you submit to the server. That could be a pure function. That could be a calculation. It's just kind of like true, false. Is this good? Did they complete the order correctly? It could maybe return a string of, you know, the error message or something if it's not good. But uh, that that's certainly a good candidate for a pure function for a calculation. Okay, now sending it to the server, that's an action because it's happening. Uh, it's having an effect on the world. And presumably, if you didn't send it, you wouldn't get the pizza, right? So the zero or one time that it gets sent is important, right? Uh, so that that's like a rule of thumb for an action. If it uh, if it depends on when it's run or how many times it's run, uh, and when it's run is often about the order. It's like relative to other things happening. Um, and we'll probably hit more examples of that. Okay, so then the server receives this request. That's an action as well. But the request itself is data. It's just some JSON that's traveling over the wire. Um, then probably some validation. Again, that could probably be a calculation. Uh, this gets sent to like the the pizza kitchen, I, I guess, is the next step. In, is that right? Next step is pizza kitchen. Yep. Pizza Kitchen's getting this data. It represents, you know, the order. One pepperoni pizza. 
Um, uh, there's some steps involved. There's a recipe that they're going to follow. The recipe is, is, uh, is data. Um, maybe there's two pepperoni pizzas. So they have to multiply all the ingredients by two. That's a calculation, right? Okay. So another thing, another rule of thumb that I like to say about calculations is they're often very hidden because you don't see them happening because they're not having an effect on the world. You couldn't see them. It's like what's what you're thinking in your head. Like I'm planning, oh, that two calcu- two pizzas, I'm going to need twice as much pepperoni, right? You're, you're doing all the calculation in your head. It's not having an effect on the world until you actually go get the pepperoni. Um, you're, you're not having an effect. So if you think of all the cal- calculations as all the like hidden planning and thinking that goes on, between actions uh that's a good way to think about it okay so then there's you know all the steps of rolling out the dough and putting the toppings on putting it in the oven that's all actions right um of course then what was the next step the oven okay so you put it in the oven um you just wait 10 minutes or however long uh, an action, you know, uh, you don't want to wait 10 minutes at the wrong time cause he'll burn your pizza. <laughs> so that means mm-hmm. it's an action. Uh, take it out, put it in a box, ship it over to, to the person. Um, probably there's going to be a ticket on the box that has their address data again. Um, there, I mean, there's, there's gotta be actions, uh, calculations in there. For instance, your, uh, you're taking that address and turning it into a, a, a GPS location with a, with a directions to get there. That's that could probably be a calculation, although it is more complicated because it's usually like a cloud thing. So you're communicating with another server that's doing that calculation. Um, but for for the sake of argument, let's say they don't have a cloud GPS thing. They're just getting directions on their Garmin or whatever. I mean, even in a JavaScript sense, it could be a calculation because when you're communicating with that cloud, that can be done in a separate calculation mm. function, right? That would always return the same thing every time, right. no matter what, because right. whatever, like with the same input. Right. So it still would be a calculation, even though it's communicating sure. with the cloud. Uh, the only... Um... I mean, I, I, I would tend to agree. The only uh, complication is sometimes it could time out. Oh, because it's not right. your server. And so whenever you communicate so across the network, mm-hmm. there's a possibility of having a 500 error or something that, you know, you would never get from, you know, multiplying two numbers together. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, yes. Um, but other than that, it is cacheable. Like you were saying, it's going to give you the same mm-hmm. thing every time. Um, I mean, this is this is kind of getting deep into the functional programming stuff. But because it's cacheable, uh, really what you're saying is that it doesn't so much have an effect on the world as it's it's bringing in information. And it's going to bring in the same information every time. And so that means I... Zero requests is different from one request, but then that second request doesn't, I don't need to do. 
because I cached it, right? So it's idempotent. Idempotent means zero or one time makes a difference. Like classic example of idempotence is the elevator button. You know, you press up to, to call the elevator. It lights up. If you press it again, it's not going to have any effect. The difference between not pressing it and pressing it is important. But that second press, the third press, that, those don't matter. It's the same with, uh, you know, calling to the, the mapping service. It's going to, it, it, the first one matters, but then after that it doesn't matter. Um, and this is the kind of reasoning you can start to do with these concepts of, of time and, and um, you know, whether it matters or not. Okay, I then then they arrive at the house and they give the guy the pizza and um eating it is definitely an action. <laughs> it's the best <Yeah>. action. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like I like this example and I wanted to bring it into play because I just wanted the people out there to understand a little yeah. bit about uh, oh, functional yeah. programming, even though it, it might be a little bit over their head or whatever, but it's important to kind of know that there is something like this out there, a right. structure to what they're doing. And that, and it's okay if it's over their head, they can a either get your book and read it or B just look at it yourself. Like, you know, go and watch some videos and study it. And this is something you would probably t- do in, in a university kind of class. Cause we have some, high school people listening to mm-hmm. our podcast. So it's important for them to kind of know that this is a future thing that they might be looking mm-hmm. at. So uh, it's, it's cool to know. And there's a, definitely a lot of like little side questions. As you were talking about that, I was going to interject and try to get some clarification on little, very intricate things in functional programming, which is cool to me, but I didn't want to, again, I didn't want to bog down the users, but maybe in the future, if uh, people are interested, let us know, we can have you back on and we can have like a more in-depth functional programming discussion. Yeah, I love that where we talk about the little intricacies of functional yeah, programming, if you have questions, uh, which yeah, would be cool for in. me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, moving on to the, uh, the next question there. Um, it kind of flows really nicely because we're talking about a complex application now. Um, so if you're already in some sort of app development team or something like that, uh, and you have an existing complex application that was not at all developed with functional programming in mind, is there any way that it can transition to functional programming moving forward, or would it be better if you maybe rewrote the whole application under the guideline of functional programming? So, I mean, my big hope is that uh, the book shows that you don't have to do a big rewrite, that you can get benefits, uh, you know, in an incremental way, because, I mean... I can't recommend that someone rewrites their <laughs> their application. Right, yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, it's it's too much work to do all at once uh and it's probably going to kill the business to do that. Um and in fact, there's uh the chapter I'm working on now um is all about immutability and one of the one of the ways to implement immutability is called copy on read. It's a discipline that if you call a function and you get a value out, let's say it's some JSON, some object, you instantly, right away, immediately make a deep copy of that. This is your copy because you don't know what this code that you called is going to do with that object that it gave you. 
Um, it's one of the things in, in JavaScript and, and a lot of other languages where you have these mutable things and there, it's not clear if you own the thing, if it's a newly created thing that only you have, or they're going to pass the same object to some other code. And you, you just don't know what's happening to this object. You know, it's sort of like if someone gives you, um, if someone gives you a message on a piece of paper or you write down a message to yourself, you put it in your pocket and then later in the day you pull it out of your pocket, you don't expect that it has changed. You expect that it is the same message that nothing touched it. But in the computer world, we have this thing where you can share references to the same object and you don't, you you can't expect that it's the same when you look at it the second time, right? And so to mitigate that, you do copy on read. I'm going to make my own copy. You can keep that or just let it get garbage collected or whoever else has a reference can keep it. I'm going to make my own copy. And you when you do that, that lets you interact with all your legacy code because you, they don't have to be functional. They don't have to, all that code that I'm talking to it can do whatever it wants. It can mutate as much as it wants. It can change the memory, change the values. I have my copy and I can now treat it as an immutable thing and, and be functional. Um, so yes, it's, it's a thing. I think about it a lot. Like how do you slowly, gradually introduce these functional ideas without going whole hog on an existing code base? It's really important. I think that's a really great wrap up to that question because it's one of those things where I think like a manager or like a management team would ask, right? Like, whoa, you want to, you want to introduce functional programming now? You know, we're two years in, we've been updating this whatever app for this many years and now you want to change the paradigm we're using? Like what, like what, what's that going to mean? How risky is that? Right. I mean, what I hope is like, like, like you were saying, like you wouldn't have to bring it up to the manager. Like you could just, you know, let's say you're pairing on this code and someone's like, oh man, they're passing me this object, but like, I know they're going to reuse this object and change it and pass it to someone else. And I just don't like, you just know right away. Oh yeah. Copy on read. That's how we do it. And then it's not a problem anymore. And it's just like a little local solution to the problem that you've got in that code. And you don't have the budget to go rewrite that whole thing to make sure it doesn't make a you know does it make changes to that object no just a local solution and i feel like the functional programming skills i'm teaching in the book should be able to be used that way like just we have this one problem we're just going to use it right here right and and with that being said too like even even as early in the book again if we try if we take our example and your example kind of combined with the uh, the pizza timeline diagram you, it within within like a couple of pages of each other from the beginning of the example through the end there are like already variations where like you know the person that's in the uh, the that owns the pizzeria or whatever she does she like she makes like she edits what's going on there. And that's kind of an attestment to like, Oh, she didn't have to like tear down her old pizzeria and right. rebuild the whole thing. She can just go in and be like, no, 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 let's put a dotted line here. Let's move these around. Let's take this, take these procedures and make them do on a different order, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of an attestment to how, um, 
how functional, if you will, functional programming can be in like an already, you know, thriving production environment. Yeah, I hope so. I hope I hope that people look at them like like refactorings, you know, it's just ways to reorganize little pieces of your code locally. You don't have to like change everything. Just like, oh, this code is, uh, you know, getting messy or we're we're not we're losing control over what it's doing. Let's apply a little functional programming to it and um, make it better. Awesome. And uh, the final question in this, seg- in this segment here is uh, how much time uh, is spent planning when using functional programming versus non-functional pr- programming in your experience? Um, yeah, I don't think that there's any uh, real difference. Um, I think that planning is important for everything, uh, for all coding. Uh, it's equally important, let's say, between all the paradigms. It's, it's very important. Right. Okay. Because I, I think that would be one thing that um, our users, our users, or our listeners, especially as beginners, would if they start thinking in less, in less terms of like, oh, I, I have to do this application. I'm just going to start coding it. If they start thinking in these paradigms, that's mm. one of the questions they're going to think up, right? Like, whoa, I got to like spend a day planning. Like, what's going on here? But in reality, you know, when you have a complex application, whether you do object oriented or whatever or functional, you do need to do a fair bit of planning right. ahead of time. And so that's kind of important for beginners to sort of acknowledge. Uh, sure. But I, I think that also um, beginners are at, well, how do I put this? As an experienced programmer, I've been programming. I mean, I'm, I'm 38 years old. You know, I've been programming a while. I don't know how many, I don't want to count how many years I've been programming, <laughs> but you know, I sit down and I see code and I can be like that, that's a code smell. You know, if we're looking for a bug, let's say I'm like, we should look there. We should look there. We should look there. And it takes me a minute to see it. And then a junior programmer sitting next to me, it will take me hours to explain why. Right. I mean, this is, I've, I've done this before where I'm like, well, you see what's happening here is where let's trace through the code and you see how this thing is calling this and then it modifies it and something else is modifying it at the same, you know, you see this instantly. Uh, and so what I'm, what I'm, well, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I don't think any amount of planning can get you to see it faster. Do you know what I'm? Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like you can't just say I'm going to plan away all the problems. <laughs> right, um, right, right. You know, as a junior, you're gonna you're you're just gonna make <laughs> code that does those things. And there's code. I still make problems too. Um, but I I have a bag of tricks that I can use to plan. And I I, I guess what I'm saying is they don't have the bag of tricks. So the planning that maybe planning is not as valuable when you're starting out. That's a really good way to put it because right as you were explaining it there, the first thing that popped into my mind was like, I'm from an IT background. And one of the first things that popped in my mind was when you bring the trainee on board, the beginner, you teach them like, this is how, you know, this is how we format hard drives. This is how we install graphics cards. This is how we do whatever. But then as more experience, as you get more experience, as you go on, 
when you read a ticket, like just reading the ticket, sight unseen, computer is, you know, you haven't looked at the person's laptop or their desktop. You're just like, eh, it's probably the hard drive or eh, mm-hmm. it's probably the CD drive. To, to them, they're like, how would you know that? And then you have to explain, and well, it's doing a ticking and noise. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's, it's sort of one of those things where it's almost like a muscle memory, I guess, you sort of develop with that bag of tricks like you were saying. So, yeah. Uh, now, Mike, I, I know you were mentioning um, something. We usually do the web news here, but you were mentioning something how we we think we've covered more or less uh, like the questions in here. Yeah, I, th- I think I mean we're approaching an hour forty at this point, so I'm thinking the web news might be a little bit extra. Uh, we, we've had a lot of good discussions. I don't know. I don't know if you, Eric, if you, how you're feeling, if you're up for the task or not. But I'm I'm feeling like it, it's probably already pretty late where you are. So I don't want to put any pressure on you to do. Yeah, if I could step any out, extra talking and explain, that'd be that'd be good. Okay, cool. Yeah, I feel like I. Already well. Um. Oh, sorry. No, I feel like I laid there. down some good stuff. Oh yeah. Well, we want to uh, want to thank you again for being on the show, and would like to invite you at this time to sort of share what you're up to. We know we were talking about your book, but anything you're up to, um, any any links or anything you'd like us to include in the show notes, you know, you have the floor. Please take it away. Uh, so I, I have a podcast. Um, if you're interested in this kind of topic, it's called Thoughts on Functional Programming. It started as me exploring the ideas for the book before I started writing it. And it was really just me with my phone, like driving or walking around, like in like little moments between, you know, like driving somewhere to pick up my kid from school. I would just turn on the camera and talk. Uh, so it had a very informal style. Now I do much more, um, I do a little bit more planning and I, a little bit more better audio than you can get in the car, let's say. Um, <laughs> and so it's at lispcast.com slash podcast. Uh, I've got, man, 140 something episodes now. Uh, so if you're interested in this, you know, go check it out. If you're interested in the book, uh, you can go to lispcast.com slash gs for grokking simplicity and that'll take you to the to the page on the manning site it's in early access now um first three chapters are available soon to be the fourth like maybe even by the time this is published it'll be out um and uh when you do early access you get the you get the ebook right away um but then you can like if you get the print version it'll be delivered to you like when it's done so you can still get the print version with the Meep. That's it. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much once again for being on the show. It was a really uh, in, uh, informational episode, and uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, and make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You could follow us on the socials via at HTML All The Things. That's on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter at HTML Everything. We are on Medium, and we're on GitHub. And remember, on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash HTML All The Things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. You can find him at youtube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript. Also, Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. You can find him at localpathcomputing.com. Craig, a.k.a. Cosworth. Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital. Find him at blueblackdigital.com. Chris from Self-Made Web Designer. You can find him at, at selfmadewebdesigner.com. And as well, Tim from The Web Hacker. 
You can find him at thewebhacker.com. Remember, we have that promo code or the discount code and two full book promo codes where you can get a free book, single use, and they do expire, as I mentioned in the beginning. So make sure you check out the full show notes, which are usually posted shortly after, like a few hours after the actual episode goes live. And they're published on the HTML All The Things website. That's HTML.com. Sorry, Jesus. That's HTMLAllTheThings.com. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to the song. And we are signing off. (laughs) 